Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Remember when news was free? Be sure to check out the Newsbreak app. It's free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. Newsbreak is your number one local news app for current events, free live news for you and your community. Download the Newsbreak app today for free and be sure to follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast on the Newsbreak app. That's the free Newsbreak app. Be sure to look for and follow the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Calling us from California, we have Chris Thorpe on the phone. Chris is a retired law enforcement officer. We'll talk about that later on. And also, it's kind of a big deal when it comes to a group called Enduring Warrior. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to have you here. And before we get into conversations, I know we got a lot of things to talk about. You're actively involved with a group called Enduring Warrior. What is that and what do you do? Operation Enduring Warrior has historically been a veterans organization that started when a group of gentlemen got together and walked around Walter Reed Hospital and basically went out and talked to the guys that were injured and didn't give them a chance to basically just marinate in their own frustration and feelings about what their injuries and they took them out and kind of reengaged them in life. So Operation Enduring Warrior has its historical tendrils in in that, and it's been predominantly with the military. Um, I've done a couple things myself, uh, very grassroots, trying to affect changes in areas that I saw, and I connected with a couple people from Operation Enduring Warrior and made it known that I respected what they did enough that I felt it should be transferred over to law enforcement. And it was my intention to essentially copy their program. So after some conversations, they initially had said, yeah, go ahead, that they gave me their blessing. And, um, you know, we were going to move on. And I was going to create this program myself and hopefully walk alongside them, you know, as a brotherhood. A couple months later, after we had kind of stopped talking, I was I was working at the time, so I couldn't get strictly into it. They called me up and said that they had wanted to expand their program to include law enforcement, so it would now be a dual military law enforcement organization, and they would bring me on as one of the founding members for the law enforcement division. So at this point in time, I am the program manager for Task Force Sentinel, which is the law enforcement division of Operation Enduring Warrior. My hat's off to you for doing that. There's a big affinity, a kinship with our law enforcement community and our military community. And this goes way back. This was this is drilled in my head when I was a rookie police. And I came from a career Navy family. And so many of our police are veterans. And we have when you have veterans that are at risk or living an at risk lifestyle, uh, the drug or alcohol problems, quite often the people they deal with the most are police. And no one's got a softer spot in their heart for them than we do. Right. No, I agree. Um, and that was, to me, it's the same one mission, one family. Ultimately, we're all attempting the same mission. And a lot of what it is, just an area of operations and whatever 
our mission specific tasks are with regard to our training. When I was teaching in the academy, uh, anytime that there was a line of duty death by law enforcement, I'd have everybody stand and we take our time to do 60 seconds of silence. And I also made them do that for the military. So anytime when I was teaching, I had a military death that I knew about. I had the recruits come up and they maintained the same semblance of silence and solemnness and remembrance for the military as I had them doing for the law enforcement because I felt that it was a brotherhood that we needed to respect. So I agree 100%. And I agree with you also. It is one, and quite often, Chris, people get into this comparison thing, and I don't do it. They'll they'll say, well, the military does this, and you guys do that, and somehow, look, there's risks for both professions, and the risks are quite often physical. Many are physically disabled, far more than those who are killed, and many are killed in the line of duty, both in law enforcement and, and military. And there are so many that are damaged mentally and, and, for lack of better words, emotionally as a result of what they've been through on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had that conversation a lot of times with the military guys. A lot of their more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, just the predominant injuries that we see are physical because they're in a more combative environment with regard to that with um, larger groups. So they're more traumatic. However, the law enforcement seems to exhibit a greater, if not equal, mental, emotional capacity for injury. So we're, we're definitely on par with that. And I think we're learning a lot in law enforcement by looking at the military model of how they handle their injuries, both traumatic and psychological and moving it over to a law enforcement capacity. So, you know, I think we're on par, and I think we definitely have a very clear-cut understanding of how the jobs impact both sets. And by the way, my hat's off to California in one respect. They seem to be (laughs) so much more ahead of the game when it comes to helping brother and sister law enforcement officers who have debilitating post-traumatic stress issues than a lot of our departments on the East Coast. Okay, and just out of curiosity, how do you see that? Because you're, you're on the East Coast, so I'm on the West Coast. What are the differences that you see? Two things with the in, in particular, and I, I hate generalizations, Chris, but two things I've mm-hmm. seen in particular. I've had so many people on the show that are on the East Coast or, or mid middle part of the United States departments, and and we're talking 15, 18, 19, 20-year veterans that developed post-traumatic stress disorder and have been fired and have lost their job. And I've met so many more on the West Coast that are retired. Now, some of the ones on the East Coast are getting better about it. And they're all getting better when it comes to critical incident stress debriefing, peer support, all those things. But one of the things I think we lose on this on Chris it may be in common on this is we do a much better job nowadays with the major critical incidents it's the everyday grind that's wearing mm-hmm. people out that we don't address <laughs> oh man that is that is right on the nail is I, I found in my issues it wasn't the incident that was the problem it was everything surrounding it and the day-to-day stuff of having to try to process that incident while dealing with the day-to-day stuff. It was the grinding of the gears on a constant basis and not the one specific issue. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think that's nailed on. And it sounds to me 
based on what you're saying, is the East Coast has a history of moving towards a termination factor while we have a history on the West Coast of more moving them towards retirement. Because I know a lot of people who were retired out of PTSD, quite a few on the West Coast. Yeah, and that's unheard of in many parts of the United States. Before we go to break, uh, where can people get more information about Task Force Sentinel and Enduring Warrior? Uh, Operation Enduring Warrior, EnduringWarrior.org. And if you go to the website, you will see that it is still highly military-centric, and that's because we are still brand new. So as the program grows, the websites and the information will flush out to a more law enforcement-centric or, you know, on-par website. So, But if you go and look now, it's definitely going to look highly military. Every program that's available on there to the military is available to law enforcement officers. And what we do is we take the time to honor, empower, and motivate our wounded law enforcement officers and our wounded military veterans. And by wounded, I don't strictly mean physical wounds. I mean anything from PTSD to we have gentlemen that are quadriplegics that we will take out skydiving, scuba diving. Don't go anywhere. We'll return our conversation with Chris Thorpe in just a few moments. One of the questions I get all the time is how can I show my support for law enforcement? We're all busy. We've got busy lives, but there's something oh so simple you can do with our Facebook page. Search for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. And when you see a post you agree with that resonates with you, share it, especially episodes of the podcast. To do all that, just search for us on Facebook, look for Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, and be sure to click like. Return our conversation with Chris Thorpe. You retired, was it Sonoma County, California? Yes, sir. And how long were you in law enforcement? 20 years um, doing that stuff. And then prior to that, I did about 10 years as a firefighter, medic, and some low-level nursing. So I kind of ran the gamut. I'd say so. You say ran the gamut. You, you did a firefighter, firefighter slash EMT? Yeah, and I ended up going to medic school, so I did that stuff too. Wow, those guys, man, they see it all day, every day. It never ends for them. No. It, <laughs> I had a conversation uh, yesterday about somebody that uh, is kind of new to the, the gig and wanted to know how to turn the adrenaline off at night. And I kind of made the comment that, you know, in, in the thick of it, I would go out and do CPR to two to three times a night on some really, really just screwed up stuff. And I would be asleep in the uh, passenger chair on the ambulance before we even cleared the hospital bay. Right. And it wasn't until I got out of everything that I realized just how abnormal that is. I mean, in the thick of it, that's what it is. It just is. It's it's not crazy, strange, weird. You know, we all have our sayings and the way we talk, but it wasn't until I got out of the the cyclone that I realized just how kind of destructive it was. Well, I can tell you one of the things you don't want to do, trust me, don't ask how I know, but to get to sleep at night, you don't want to resort to alcohol. That that may work for a while, but in the long run, it's going to bite you in the rear. It's not a good way to deal with it. Fortunately, I don't drink because I think if I did, I would probably either at this point be dead in prison or at least suffering greatly. Yeah. Uh, physically and i don't understand the correlation between trauma stress all that stuff what the terms that the the clinicians use 
I don't understand the correlation between that and alcohol. I do know, and I, I gave up drinking 20, more than 25 years ago. Some people call it straight edge, Chris. I'm just a guy who doesn't drink or do drugs or, or anything else. And, mm-hmm. and I used to have a lot of vices. I used to be a wild man. I jokingly would say I'd work four to 12 shift, go out to bars, chase women, be up to four mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning, get a couple hours of sleep, go to court in the morning, and then do it all over again. Yeah. Now at 9.30 at night, dude, I'm ready for bed. I'm, I'm like the, such a boring guy, and I'm okay with oh, it. Hey, um, I go to bed about 8 o'clock, and yeah. one of the reasons is because we take care of my my wife's parents, and, you know, they go to bed a little early, so we kind of shut down a bit at 8. But I was out at that point in time doing the same thing, oh, my God, 4 o'clock in the morning yeah. every day. I was such six. a lunatic, and now yeah. I, I tell people – my, my day job, I'm a, a music DJ in the Florida Keys in Key West. And I tell people, I'm the squarest, palest guy you'll meet in Key West, and I'm totally okay with that. Are you, when you say DJ, are you doing music? Oh, yeah, at FM radio that's station. That's what I did. Yeah. No, that's what I did. I did, I did club DJing back when I first started run, running calls. So I would go out, run calls, and i go be a club DJ till 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> that definitely defies the Hollywood stereotypes. It, it, a lot of what the show is dedicated to is providing a platform for primarily law enforcement officers, their family members, spouses, other first responders, uh, survivors, and victims of crimes to tell their story. And part of the reason why, Chris, is because Hollywood, when I say Hollywood, movies, television, news, social media, they do such a horrible job of telling our stories. And we've relied mm-hmm. on them for far too long. Now we're taking control. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. It, it I didn't feel like a very glamorous lifestyle. It wasn't one I would have chosen. It wasn't one I wouldn't have recommended, but it was one I did. You know, <laughs> I'm glad you're doing it now. I'm glad you're having fun playing DJ. I haven't done that for 30 years. I, I like it. It's a lot safer than being a police. Without a doubt. It, well, uh, it's a lot less stressful, too. And, uh, uh, what, uh, real quickly, people say to me, "I'm sorry, I don't want to stress you out with all this radio stuff." I go, "Look, this is this is nothing compared to where I came from." That's interesting because I noticed when I retired out, um, I'm struggling uh, dealing with people that come to me with their stories, and I almost find them boring. Oh. They're they're, ta- they're excited about their day to day lives, and, I, and I'm trying to engage, and I almost want to look at them and say. You ever done CPR on a baby? You ever did a did a you know dealt with a child molester investigation from that? Have you ever pulled a teenager out from a suicide victim? No, you're not that interesting. Right. It, it, it's, yeah, I, it's, I don't want to say that to them, but I know in the back of my head, it's like your excitement level for your day to day life just we're not on par. So it I'm makes it very difficult way. to have. Yeah, I have. A, I'm having. I'm struggling with that now my social skills are not that good and my wife is acutely aware of it and she's like she's a, the perfect caller she's like hey uh, don't answer that question just leave it alone and right now while we're doing the show the covid19 things going on and uh the, the pandemic and the stay-at-home order i tell people they ask how you do it i'm like this is right up my alley i go <laughs> to work i come home and i don't have to be around people this is wonderful oh my gosh no you're right i People have asked me how you're doing. I'm like, my day-to-day life hasn't changed. I could do this forever. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's <laughs> funny, and we'll get serious in a moment. I, I need, okay. as much as I don't like being social, I need to have social 
contact with people. And the ones who get me the most are police and law enforcement. But there's a lot of other people, too. And it's not that they don't care, but a lot of people did care and do care and they want to know more. And what we want to do is tell them some of the stories. When you encounter people and they find out you're retired law enforcement, what's the one question that you get most often that annoys you the most? Oh, that annoys me. Um, That's a good question. I retired at 49 because I had the opportunity to start the stuff with Operation Enduring Warrior. And my date had just came up. And I found that if I went out at 49 versus 50... It wasn't that big of a hit economically. So I bounced out about six months early. And I'm the youngest one I see walking through the stores on any given Wednesday. So anytime anybody finds out I'm retired, it's it's usually, what? How did you do that? And there's this almost look of disdain that I'm early 50s now. And that I'm no longer working and I'm economically okay. And it's like, I put in the time. I did the duty. I worked overtime. I squeezed in with overtime 30 years of service into 20 with mandatory overtime. Plus, you take my 10 years of service with fire and EMS. At age 49, I have crammed in, I would say, 41 years of actual service time. I think I earned it. Yeah, I, I would say that's uh, absolutely the case. I can relate. I've had people, they go, you were retired at 33? And I tell them, yes. And they go, how did how did you get so lucky? And I'm like, just try getting right. shot at, have multiple surgeries, and, and have a total fusion of your right hand and wrist, and you too can be retired at a very young age. We're talking with Chris Thorpe. Chris is a retired law enforcement officer amongst many other things and also we're talking about task force sentinel and enduring warrior don't go anywhere we'll be right back of all the radio stations in the united states there are no other shows like the law enforcement talk radio show and on facebook there's only one official page do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. Back to our conversation with Chris Thorpe, retired law enforcement officer from Sonoma County, California. Um, by the way, Chris, thanks for your service. Not only in law enforcement, you're a firefighter, EMT, and you did all that stuff. That's that's a lot uh, for any one person to do. One of the things that happens to me, and I don't talk about my police career much anymore, only with certain people. And even with certain people, like other police, there's a lot of things I don't talk about because, well, quite honestly, I don't know them very well. And But what wound up happening for me years ago, Chris, and I don't know if that happened to you, but going to barbecues and cookouts and people say, oh, yeah, here's Jay. He's a police. And they make a joke. And then somebody, some jackhammer would come up and uh, holding a beer and say, did you ever shoot anybody? And at first I was nice about it. I was polite. Then I started saying things like, why would I want to talk about one of the worst moments of my life with a total stranger, a jerk at a barbecue? And they'd be like, you don't have to be like that. Well, those questions yeah. still linger. When they find out I'm retired police, it's inevitable. It's like, boom, there's the question. Yeah, I've, I, I, everybody gets, what's the worst thing you've seen? 
what's the worst, you know, what's, what's the worst? And I don't know. How do you explain that? How do you explain that to the average person? I think probably like you did, I skirted the issue. I moved around the issue somehow, um, pushed it back on them. I, I think for me, there were a couple incidents that really stood out that tend to be conversation pieces. And one of them was in 2006, I think plus or minus, I was driving to work and I was coming on a freeway and I looked down the freeway when there was, there was a fully involved car fire in the middle of the, the freeway. And having worked in fire, I was like, okay, this has been going on for a while. What's going on here? And I pull over slowly, get out of the car, I walk over and there's a child hanging out the back fully involved car, his head and his arm are pushed out the back. And I look in the front seat and there's a woman fully engulfed. She's not moving. And I kind of look at the scene a little confused because I thought this was going on. And then people start running up and I realized this had just occurred, that I was literally the first one on scene. I'm in my personal vehicle. I'm literally the first one on scene. Uh, so I take off my cover jacket and go to start grabbing for the kid, realizing I'm now showing my patches, and it's like, oh, guess what? I'm in charge. Here we go. Uh, rally the troops, get the people going, and uh, eventually we pulled the, the child out. He's about three years old, uh, third-degree burns over 90% of his body. Uh, one of my partners kind of drives up, shows up finally, gets out of the car. He's, he's looking at me. I'm kind of looking at him. And we look in the front seat, and the woman in the front seat starts to slowly move. Because well, I had written her off as dead. Well, we tried several times to get her in, get her out. We couldn't. Uh, fire shows up. We back out. They remove her. She's still alive at this point, at which point somebody looks in the car, leans out, and goes, there's more in here. So this is a very small that was fully engulfed with flames, probably, I would say, 12 to 13 feet high. And it was so hot and so intense that neither of us saw the other four people that were in the car. So ultimately what happens is I end up winning or being given the gold, the medal of valor, the gold medal of valor. And for me, it was very frustrating in that this was something I didn't plan for. This wasn't something I was moving along for. This was just something that I happened across and I acted because it's who I am. And one of the problems I had was that during the incident, I became really frustrated with the people around me that were screaming. And I remember looking and thinking in my head, shut the bleep up. You're not helping. And I then went home and went to sleep right after this whole thing. And I'm given a gold medal of valor for this. And I felt internally how screwed up up my eye that I can witness four or five people burning to death six inches from my face and go home and go to bed. So internally I had a really hard time that, and I went through some problems with that. But what really brought it around is I met the kid on a, on a uh, happenstance outing. Oh my God. 12 years later, the child that I pulled from the, the car and I happened to have my gold medal in my Jeep in the glove compartment. Cause that's where I kept it. Cause I wasn't really interested in it. And I ended up giving it to him for everything he had endured, all the challenges he's faced, and how much of a warrior he's become because of that incident. So I ended up giving it away. So that's been kind of my um, story from beginning to end on one of the, the main things I had was how I happened across this, the, the tragedy, the carnage, 
how frustrated I became, and then ultimately turning it around and, and giving this, this this young man who survived this horrific thing a uh, an award, for lack of a better term. I think you described that very, very well. I, I, I think you're probably, if you're like me, the, the term frustrated might be an understatement. And I, I do recall actually having IID complaints against me for not that I wanted to say something to people to, to, to shut up. You're not helping. I actually said it and worse. And those are the kind of things that, that people oftentimes don't expect you to be human. They expect you to be a robot. And there's so many emotions that go through your head. At the time this is going on, Chris, if someone had asked you why you did something, you probably couldn't even tell them. No, and that's why I didn't feel like I, I, I deserved an award. I, that's, what, that's who I am. That's what I do. This was an incident that happened that I simply reacted. There was no planning. There was no forethought. There was no, I'm going to go do this today. I get why you say that, and I understand 100%. But a lot of people don't realize what it takes. And I, I have to correct them all the time. I never really got afraid until afterwards. And in right. some cases, I was throwing up afterwards. In other ones, I was laughing. Other times, I'm screaming like a lunatic. And then other times, <laughs> I go right to bed. It was no rhyme or reason to it. But you go from extreme boredom to a life or death situation in a matter of seconds. In this case, right. look, you're just driving along, minding your own business, and boom, it's right there. You, so you reacted. It doesn't seem like a hero or heroic thing when you describe it that way. But to everybody else knowing they won't run to danger, it is heroic. Okay. So to me, to me, it is more heroic for the person that wakes up this morning, that drives to the blood bank, that puts their arm out, that donates a pint of blood that will save three lives because there was a concerted thought process that took decisive action. I get it. Yeah, I get and it. I, I, know you, I know you do. And, and so for me, the word hero is really hard to embrace because I, I heard that a lot because I didn't do anything except for being me. And that's part of the problem I have. People are very quick to criticize police. They're very quick to say, well, they should have done this, they shouldn't have done that. And they're very slow to say, well, they did heroic stuff. And we are, by nature... As an organization, as a family, as a blue family, whatever term people want to use, we are not quick to say, yeah, that was some heroic stuff. We'll say it about other guys we worked with, but we will never say it about ourselves. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe it's a level of uncomfortability. I'll be honest with you, Chris. People will say things to me like, it's taken me a long time. This is a very simple thing, but it's taken me a long time to get comfortable with this. People will say, Thank you for your service. It's very much appreciated. And I wouldn't know right. what to say. I would what downplay you it. I would, now I say, you're welcome and thank you for saying so. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. But before, it was, well, you know, I just doing my job. It's just uh, it, it was the worst. Taking compliments and taking criticism, I'd much rather be criticized. It's much easier to handle than taking compliments. We are talking with Chris Thorpe. Chris is retired law enforcement officer. Uh, he'll explain more. He's a firefighter, did EMT thing. He's heavily involved in a group called Operation Enduring Warrior and Task Force Sentinel. We'll be right back. Whether you're an aspiring podcaster, new or published author, speaker, content creator, visionary, or a dreamer crafting your message, 
Now is your moment to shine. At CreativeCon 2024, you'll discover how to position yourself as an industry leader and leverage podcasting, publishing, production, and promotions to maximize your impact. For those seeking purpose, we'll ignite your storytelling passions and guide you to a more fulfilling path. To secure your tickets for this one-of-a-kind live event taking place at Chicago's Metropolis Performing Arts Center on February 17th and 18th, visit creativecon.com. That's C-R-E, the number 8, T-I-V-E-C-O-N.com. Get your tickets today. The future is yours. Speak it. Write it. Live it. Return our conversation with Chris Thorpe. Chris, a retired Sonoma County law enforcement officer, also heavily involved in a group we'll talk more about, Operation Enduring Warrior. Chris, before we went to break, we're talking about this thing of being uncomfortable with labels of heroic or or warrior or uh, thank you for your service. I struggled with that for a very, very long time. Did you find it difficult as well? Oh, very much so. I found it extremely difficult to, to bring in and accept that gratitude, that face-to-face gratitude. What I also felt found really difficult to assimilate was the law enforcement culture with regard to civilians in that uh, nursing, EMS, and fire, uh, you go to the same calls and everybody is there to, you know, to welcome you, to say thank you, here you go, you know, EMS, get cake and pie sometimes. Fire department, definitely cake and pie. Nursing, they would bring us chocolates to the to the nursing station. Law enforcement, not so much. Right. Not so much. Yeah. Uh, so for me, for my twenty, literally for my twenty year career, I had trouble being flipped off for walking into a room to help somebody. Whereas, if I was wearing the the turnouts from the fire department or the stethoscope from EMS, they they welcomed me. It's like, wait, you're prejudging me based upon the color of my uniform, not the content of my character, not right. what my intention is. Yeah. And, so and I, you're and you're judging me as a person based on stereotypes that you've been told by other people yeah. that you don't it know. Mm-hmm. No, you're right, and it, it. I I can't say it is the same thing, but it gave me a sense of what people that feel racism is about. I, I see your point. Same. Yeah, I mean, we got. Sorry, go I always say this example: uh, when something happened in L.A., let's say the the uh, Rodney King. Uh, beatings and then we would get blamed for it in baltimore as if we were one big organization and we all did the same thing and one of the thoughts that occurred to me all the time uh, i've been i was in four shootings in 10 years and the first two i never fired a shot back uh fortunately everybody survived but one of the first things that went through my head when i could think about it was that these people want to kill me and they have no idea who i am as a person correct exactly they didn't care what color my skin was they didn't care what they didn't care anything about me they just wanted to avoid apprehension yet if a police did something it's about race it's about other things yeah it is and that's it's it's an asymmetrical situation it's you know there's it's it just is it's just an asymmetrical situation we have to play by certain rules and the other side doesn't and if we and at the moment we even bend the rules, even if it's a mistake, we're called out on it, and sometimes in a way that just 
doesn't make sense and it isn't even applied to the situation. It's just a way of calling us out. Right. And it's difficult. And so for me, with that frustration, I had made, God, a few thousand, I think, of uh, these black morale patches that said thank you in white letters and then it had a thin blue line uh, down the middle. And for me to try to find a way to get past a that feeling uncomfortable of being you know said thank you to and another way to try and embrace and kind of create a bridge between the community and officers i traveled across the united states from the east coast to the west coast and i actively sought out law enforcement officers and i handed these patches out to them with a little note saying who i was and what i was doing and i tried simply to walk up say thank you look them in the eye, shake their hand, and give them a patch. And the patch, you know, it's a modicum of a thread. It doesn't, it doesn't amount to much, but the, 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 the symbolism is that I had to pay for that. So that money came out of my life that I traded for the money. So it's a small portion. But that's, that represents a small moment of my life that I'm giving to them, and they can take it. And if they're having a bad day, they can see it and know that somebody actively said thank you. Now, yes, I'm their peer, but I'm also a civilian. Right. I mean, anytime I'm anywhere and I have to call 911, they gotta, they're going to come to me. So I'm saying thank you as a civilian. Now, I have the short hair. You know, I had a shirt with a symbol of line on it. I even actively addressed myself as a law enforcement officer from California, and this is what I'm doing. And they still either looked at me, took the patch, shoved it in their pocket, and ran off. Or they flipped the patch around in their fingers for a good 30 seconds before the, the cogs connected. They realized what was going on, and then they sometimes they broke down. They would cry, yeah. saying, nobody said thank you. Hey, man, that's awesome. This, this is great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I dropped off a patch, uh, a big stack of patches in Winnemucca, Nevada. Asked to talk to the chief. They're like, well, he, he can't come out. He's busy. And I said, okay, here's, you know, this is what these are for. This is what, what's going on. I got back in my car, and by the time I'm getting out to the car, the chief is running out to come talk to me. It was, you know, at first it's like, no, 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 no. But as soon as they realize what's, what's actively happening, they're, they're much more engaged because all of a sudden they realize somebody is actually trying to say thank you. And it's such a hard thing to do. It, I've gotten much better taking that, and I try to make a point to say thank you to every law enforcement officer and firefighter, EMT, and nurses. Uh, and, and the healthcare professionals it, that I can, and it's always awkward, but I make a point of doing it because it was never done back on the job. When I was working, it never happened. It it happens far more now that I'm retired and been retired a long time than ever did when I was on the job. Yeah, and I actually have additional patches made for uh, so I have law enforcement, fire, EMS, nurses, and military, just for that reason. So I spend my days a lot of times going out with patches in my car, and then when I come across these people, I take the time to go out, shake their hand, look them in the eyes, say thank you. Because I think the way to really bridge the gap is the, the face-to-face thank you, the, inter, the interaction on a personal level, not just wearing a T-shirt, throwing a sticker on your car or something like that. that I, I get that that's a way of showing support, but it means so much to have somebody look you in the eye, extend their hand. And extend that gratitude. I mean, that's a personal moment that I think we sorely lack. Well, I want to thank you, A, for your service, but also thank you for taking the time and energy to do that because 
that takes a lot of planning and conscious thinking. I'm going to make the effort. I'm going to go through the uncomfortable bits to do this because it's going to be, and quite honestly, it's uncomfortable for the the cop on the other end. And it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. for me doing it, but it's got to be done because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? Yes, but it's only uncomfortable until you do it. And yeah. then you, what you, as you continue to do it, and then somebody sees you doing it, they go, hey, I like that. I want to do that, too. As soon as you get another person doing it, it takes away the uncomfortableness. And all of a sudden, we're expressing gratitude towards each other in ways we hadn't previously. Well, I'm going to shift gears uh, uh, back a little bit. Uh, one of the things I've gotten to do working in radio is I've gotten to do a lot of events, especially ones in the D.C. area, for wounded veterans at Walter Reed. And one of the hardest things I found to do was to, to go up and, and start a conversation because I was always afraid of saying the wrong thing. And it's not just with our, our wounded veterans. I had the same, I saw the same problem with surviving spouses of, of law enforcement officers killed in line of duty. I have a, the same problem with surviving spouses of those who died by suicide. Afraid of saying the wrong thing so I don't engage or reach out i've gotten a lot better at that is that something that you've been doing with enduring warrior operation operation enduring warrior uh yeah no that's what we do is we reach out we reach out to people and we we bring them in and we let them know they're not alone that we are here that this is a family organization you do not have to be military you do not have to be law enforcement to be a part of it that we bring everybody in because we want everybody to support one another. Um, yeah, and I think, I don't know if you found this to be the case, but the worst thing you can say is nothing. Right. If you, if you say something, you may trigger a memory, an emotion, something in that person that causes them to react, but that, I, it's not like that was the wrong thing. It just happened to be the thing that brought it forth. But I think, and not being in that situation... It's my belief that they would understand what your intention was not to bring it up, but to express condolences, support, those kind of things. So I think not saying anything is the, the, the wrong move. And I understand about being tactful and everything, but I, w- I would rather err and show support than apathy. And very quickly, for a of time, where can people get more information about what you do? What we do at Operation Enduring Warrior, we, we, we take our wounded guys and we basically surround them, support them, and we help them go out and live the best version of their lives. We do that through a lot of different things, specifically adventure therapy. We'll go out and do obstacle course races, scuba diving, skydiving, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, the choice is theirs. It is 100% free of charge to them. We are 100% volunteer, which means that nobody makes a single dime on this. We all do this because it's the right thing to do, and we are 100% donation-driven. And get more so details online. What's the website address? www.enduringwarrior.org. Chris, thanks so much for your service, and thanks for being a guest on the show. Thank you, sir. Get access to free podcast versions of the show and more on Facebook. Do a search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, and be sure to click like. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. 
I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.